0: Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program. As always, I'm Caleb Colquitt, and as you can tell by our decorative background here, which I'm covering up just a little bit, let me scooch over there, it is indeed one of the most sacred days on the nerd calendar. May the 4th. So today is Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you as always. And I do have right before we get to our coronavirus update, which of course we are going to get to right away in short order. But before we do that, I did want to, since it is May the 4th, give a couple of pieces of big Sky uh, Star Wars news. First of all, Rise of Skywalker is now on Disney+. Plus. So if you've got Disney+, Plus, like I do, then you can actually watch the entirety of the st- the Skywalker saga from the original trilogy to the prequels and now even the newer movies, the final movie has been added to Disney Plus as of today. So you can actually go and watch Rise of Skywalker on May the 4th. I thought that was a really smart move by Disney, something to show their fans they appreciate them and also very much needed in the middle of this crazy pandemic. Honestly, if it weren't for this pandemic... They probably hold off on that. They probably wait to see if more people are going to buy the Blu-ray, that kind of thing. But since they didn't, and, and since everything is going on with everyone being stuck at home and, and watching an awful lot of internet TV, it kind of made sense. And if you're interested in Star Wars and, and have Disney+, Plus, then that's, of course, not the only great Star Wars content you have. The Mandalorian, the entirety of that series is on. I've personally not watched it yet, which I know a lot of people find shocking. I I just haven't got around to it, and frankly, there's not as much draw for me because I'm so Jedi-centric, and the the Mandalorians don't really interest me all that much, but anyway, it's out there, and I intend to watch it at some point, so if that's something you're interested in, you can go ahead and do that. There's also, and this is something that I found out just recently, I've been watching it, I just haven't finished it yet. Uh, the entirety of the Clone Wars series is on there, including a brand new season, and I've seen the first four or five episodes, and I believe that there's a few more, but they actually have a final season of Clone Wars that they made specifically this year for the conclusion of that. So, lots of great stuff going on on Disney+, Plus if you are at all interested in Star Wars. Pretty much all the Star Wars content you could want is right there. I think there are a few things that people have talked about that are missing, but solo rogue one all of the the major movies all of the tv series star wars rebels it's all there and right now when you've got nothing better to do it makes sense to be doing that so disney also announced today and this is the the big news that i was talking about that i believe i'm saying his name right it's a strange name taika watiti that's the dude's name i Maybe I'm butchering the pronunciation I don't know but that's his name Taika Waititi will be directing a Star Wars movie. Now there is no news on what that might be. It's not going to be something from the Skywalker saga. We know that because Disney already announced that they were wrapping that up with episode 9. But he will be directing a major Star Wars movie. Now whether or not that's something in the main series, whether it's a spin-off movie, It's hard to say, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on that because, like I said, we got to get to our coronavirus update. But a couple of suggestions that I heard today that were thrown out there were Obi-Wan Kenobi, some kind of Obi-Wan movie, which, by the way, Disney has been talking about doing for some time. They also talked about doing a Yoda spinoff, but the thing is that Yoda spinoff already got nixed at one point, and maybe they're bringing it back, and that's the project that he's going to be working on. But I kind of doubt it. I I could be wrong. But it seems to me that Obi-Wan is more likely. There has also been talk of doing a new Old Republic. I know, that sounds like an oxymoron. A new Star Wars series based on the Old Republic. So it's a new Old Republic series. (laughs) Uh, For those of you that aren't as familiar with the Old Republic in that time period, it's a period of about a thousand years before the Star Wars saga. And it's basically before the the Rule of Two. And so you do have armies of Sith and Jedi fighting with one another. So the way that it works is Sith are actually able to take on multiple apprentices. There's a Sith Empire going on. So there's just Sith all over the galaxy. So the the bad guys with the red lightsabers. And they wind up just with these massive galactic wide battles between the Sith and the Jedi. So it's not... Sith versus a bunch of stormtroopers or sorry, Jedi versus a bunch of stormtroopers or Jedi versus a bunch of droids. It's actually a lot of Jedi and a lot of Sith. And so that's a really interesting way that they would try to take it. Uh, I'd really love it. I love the old Republic games. Well, I, I love the old Republic game. I don't like, uh, the old Republic, the, the main ones from Xbox and Xbox 360, but I would really love to see that. I think it's a great place to start, and it would be really interesting. But I think this particular director, because he tends to be focused on smaller groups of people, sort of a narrow focus on a handful of characters. That seems to be where he shines based on his previous work. And and keep in mind, this is the guy who did Thor Ragnarok. And so he's kind of goofy and likes to do some... Uh, some comedy mixed in with the action, which I think is a really good thing. Star Wars has kind of dabbled in that in the past few movies and, and it's actually been pretty good. I think he could really kick it up to the next level. And I think Obi-Wan movie is most suited out of all the things that we've talked about for him. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know that that's, it's possible that that's uh, not going to be the, the way that it goes, but this is the guy who helped direct the season, or this is the guy that did direct the final episode of the mandalorian and so he's already worked with the star wars series he's already proven that he understands what what star wars is supposed to be i think it's a good hire and i'm really looking forward to it like i said i think the most likely scenario is that he winds up directing an obi-wan film and one last thing before we we move on to our coronavirus update Uh, i saw this meme today out of all the may the 4th memes i saw i think this one was the best one so a, a buddy of mine sent this to me If we can pull it up. There we go. All right, yeah. How you feel when you pull out your Bible in service. I don't know about you, but that that perfectly illustrates how I feel when I pull out my Bible in a church service. It's like, all right, stuff just got serious. Time to pull out the old spiritual sword and and see what God's Word has to say. I'm like that. I, I don't know if anybody else is like that, but that's kind of how I always picture it or imagine it ever since when I was a little kid. I was reading Ephesians 6 and read the whole armor of God and, and how the word is like a, a a spiritual sword. Well, I mean, from then on, I always thought of it as a sword. Because <laughs> uh, you guys know what a, a fantasy and, and sword nut I am if you've ever seen some of my Geek End episodes and, and some of the, the more nerdish side of, of what I do. So let's go ahead and jump into our coronavirus update. And we'll go ahead and get you hooked up with the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. So let's go ahead and pull that up. All right, so you will see there that currently the state of Alabama has 8,025 confirmed cases. We have 100 and, or sorry, 103,117 tests that have been conducted, 296 deaths, and then 1,064 hospitalizations. So this was an interesting one, and it, it always there's always sort of a, a data dump whenever it comes around to Monday, because we haven't had a show since Thursday, and so there's a lot to process. So we're going to go over that as concisely as we can here. Now, uh, the confirmed cases has been 123 added to the confirmed cases, since Thursday, and 296 deaths. Now, I I want you to go ahead and look at the confirmed cases here, just this graph that shows all of the, the total confirmed cases. One thing that's really interesting about this one is that it's remained fairly steady, and then you're seeing that there is at least maybe some early signs here of a leveling off period there at the end. But I think the one that gives you a better visualization of how we're doing is the new cases day by day. So let's go ahead and pull that up. All right, now this is tells a different story because what appeared to be a, a pretty consistent slope when you're looking at the totals, you can see that it's a little bit different here when you're looking at new cases because we've actually, actually seen an uptick in cases. We're actually seeing several new cases uh for the past several days because it, remember the last time we had a show was 4 days ago. Well, you'll notice since then we had a really big spike and then two smaller spikes but still larger than we had on Thursday and then another very big one today. Now, these aren't the exponential spikes that we're talking about. I'm using spike in, in a different sense. It's not the spike is just an uptick in cases. But there's a couple different ways that this could be understood and, and we could sort of dig into this to try to figure out what exactly this means, because I think there's a couple different ways to read this and, and read the reason behind it. Uh, and, and I think that both are equally valid, but not both are equally likely. And so I'll go over that in just a second. But to really help you understand that we do need to look at a little bit more data And the testing itself does sort of lead to what our conclusion is going to be. So we'll go ahead and pull up. These are the new tests done in the state of Alabama. You'll notice that our testing for today, way, way up. But that's after two consecutive days of zero test. And if that's the case, then that means that probably what happened is there was some kind of reporting error or bookkeeping error, because it's unlikely that for two days, the entire state of Alabama had not one single test for the Wuhan coronavirus, it's more likely that the testing facilities either couldn't report them or or whatever. But you'll notice that today is the, by far, the biggest day of testing the state has ever had, and that is good. But considering that it comes directly after two days with zero testing, what more likely happened is that there was testing going out throughout these three days, and we're just getting all of them reported at one time, which is the reason we had more tests today than we did in any single day. It's not necessarily something to be celebrating if you realize that that's probably what happened because if you do level it out, if you average over the past few days, it winds up being pretty underwhelming. In fact, uh, if you're looking at tests done for the previous week, the previous seven day period, so from today until last Monday, that averages at 4,160 new tests a day this week which, by the way, is better than the week before it, but not by much. The, the average for the seven-day period before that week is only 4,000 and about 40. So only roughly 120 less per week out of 4,000. That's just not something to write home about. And so the testing is up some, and we're doing a little better, but the rate at which we're doing better is so tiny, it's it's barely even worth mentioning. So our testing has remained roughly the same-ish for at least about a two-week period. And that's not really something to be proud of. I don't think it's necessarily something to be freaked out about either, but we can do better. And that's really the what I wanted to leave you with on the testing, because I think especially, especially if we're going to start opening this thing up, which it looks like we're going to start trying to do here in the near future... Governor Ivy's dragging her feet a little bit, but, you know, she is 150 years old. So that's kind of to be expected. Uh, but looking at that, you know, we, we're going to have to do better on testing if we want this thing to open up. Now, maybe we open it up and don't test much and are fine. But either way, that means we're flying blind. Remember, the testing is an indicator. So it's kind of like driving without a speedometer. Like, you can do it, and you can probably get a decent guess at how fast you're going based on things around you and having driven in the past, but you need a speedometer. Like, that that's pretty standard issue, and if we're doing this, then we need a good way to measure it. People out there that are pro getting rid of the shutdown, opening it all back up, I mean, I'm talking even to people that, not like me on the extreme, that are saying we just need to go back to life as normal tomorrow, which I don't think is smart. If they were to do that, though, believe me, if you, even if you are on that side, you want the testing. You want the testing more than the people that are not saying that. And the reason is because that's the only thing that are going to give people confidence to be able to go out and start getting something, you know, get back to something that somewhat resembles a normal life. Because if people believe that the result of going to the movies is going to be death or even a a, a decent chance of death, they ain't going out. And so the testing is really going to help us with our level of public confidence. And that's the reason that it's it's super, super important, regardless of what side you are. If you're somebody that's super concerned about the virus and, and thinks that it's the apocalypse and we should stay locked in our houses until January, I think you're a nut, but... The point is, if you're that person, you should really want more testing. And if you're somebody that is saying, yeah, let's just uh, pedal to the metal. Let's open it up as wide as we can, right back to the way that it was before we started the shutdown. Again, if you're that person, I also think you're a nut. But if you are that person, you should also want a lot of testing. Uh, Both sides would be benefiting from testing regardless of, of what they want the result to be or, or what they want the policy to be. And uh, it's really something that we need to do a better job on. Let's also go and, and look at this. Speaking of numbers and data, let's go to the new coronavirus deaths in the state of Alabama. Some really good news here, because you'll see, and, and remember we talked about it a couple weeks ago, we had those two really big spikes and we were afraid that that was going to be something that was kind of normal. And you'll remember that I said that if we stayed on that projected path, then we were going to reach our estimated death tolls within like a week. Luckily, that has not happened. And we've started to back off. And one thing that I will note that is interesting is that it doesn't seem, which, by the way, is consistent with the data that we've seen on a national level, comparing states to states and even comparing states to European countries, that the level of openness of a state does not contribute to its death toll. States that have opened up, states that never had stay-at-home orders at all, some of them are doing significantly better than states that implemented very early stay-at-home orders. And so, I don't see any correlation here. In fact, you'll see that the death rates have actually gone down significantly compared to when the stay-at-home order shutdown was, was in full effect and you know, pretty much everybody was abiding by it here in the state of Alabama. And you'll notice over the past few days, especially the past three days, we've had very, very few deaths. In fact, it's so small you can barely even see it on that chart. Now, full disclosure here, you, you may notice that those days where we had zero, zero, and then I think just uh, six, Yeah, I, I believe that's the figure. So over the past three days, we had zero deaths, zero deaths, and then six deaths today. Now, the thing that you may want to remember here and to put that into proper perspective is that could be the weekend because you may recall, and we've talked about this on the show as well, that even though it's a very odd phenomenon and I'm not really sure why it does this, it's important to remember and to note that for whatever reason, the deaths are always down on the weekend. And that's not just in the state of Alabama, that's nationwide. It's a very odd phenomenon because... Of all the statistics that might be affected by a weekend, that one would be the one that you would think would be most immune to it, but actually the opposite has proven to be true. For whatever reason, people just are not dying at the same rates on weekends, and and that's a really baffling phenomenon, but that's the way that it is. I say that to say, it is possible that what we're seeing now with those super low death rates where we're having multiple days back-to-back with no deaths at all, and then having one with under under 10, so in the single digits, that's probably not the new norm. That's probably not going to be a trend that we're able to stick with for very long. And we're probably going to see an uptick in those throughout the week and then a similar drop again in the weekend if the trends that we've been seeing are indicative of the trends that we will continue to see. But that being said, it is a good sign. It is a really good sign that fewer people are dying from this thing. We're on a downward trajectory, especially considering where we came from on our total number of deaths. And another statistic that might help us understand this is hospitalizations. Now, you'll look up there at our hospitalization rate, and you'll notice that hospitalizations actually are up today. They've been down Over the past couple of days during the weekend, which again, that would be one that you would think it would be the opposite, that you would actually have more hospitalizations in the weekend. But no, we've actually seen a a dip in hospitalizations, which by the way, hospitalizations don't have the same weekend trends that deaths do. And so those aren't necessarily ones that are affected much by the weekend. And yet we have very low rates of hospitalizations on the second, the third, and today. So that's a really good sign as well uh i think that the main thing to look at with this and and to look at these numbers because just to, to sum up what we've done so far and looked at our cases are up but our hospitalizations are down and our deaths are down now there's a few reasons for this explanation i'm going to give you these two possible explanations And frankly, I think one is more likely than the other. I'm going to give you the one that I believe is the more likely reading, but both are plausible. It is possible that it's a combination of these two, or it's possible that the latter, though less likely in my opinion, is the actual explanation. So the first one, which I believe is more likely, maybe because I'm just, I don't know, pessimistic on this whole thing. You have to remember that these are lagging stats. Hospitalizations are lagging stats. Usually... The way that the trends go is that they're a few days behind when the confirmed rates go up. So you have more people get sick, they stay sick for a few days, they get hospitalized a few days afterward. Deaths are the same thing, a little bit longer lag. So if you have a spike in cases, you're going to typically have a spike in deaths that tail it by about a week or two. Usually more than a week, less than two weeks, somewhere in that, that sweet spot is where you're going to see a correlating spike between confirmed cases and deaths. What's interesting about this trend, though, uh, because I, I do think that it, it could be lagging and we did have a decrease in total confirmed cases last week. So it is possible that what we're seeing with the reduced hospitalizations and the reduced deaths is just a result of the fact that the previous week we had significantly less confirmed cases than we did because like i said testing remained relatively stagnant so we were testing at about the same rate this week as we were last week and so you can't just chalk up the coronavirus cases to an increase in testing so if we have more cases less hospitalizations less deaths that's one pa- that's one very plausible explanation that it's because it's lagging And if we do see this increase in cases right now, we should be expecting an increase in deaths and hospitalizations on down the road. And by the way, that's not really necessarily anybody's fault. If that takes place, that's because we always knew that when we were going to start opening back up, that that would increase deaths, that would increase hospitalizations. That was always part of the plan. We knew that going in. The shutdown was never intended to prevent deaths or prevent people from getting the disease. It was always, from the very start, intended to flatten the curve. And the reason that we wanted to flatten the curve was to keep our healthcare system from getting overwhelmed. Now we're more or less caught up. We have way more ventilators than we thought that we would need. Not a single person in the United States that needed a ventilator has been unable to get one. We have a large surplus of a lot of the medical supplies that we thought that we would need when it came, we're still a little lagging on personal protective equipment, but as far as ventilators and having hospital beds and ICU beds, we're actually doing very well on those. In fact, we, we may be doing too well. Our hospitals are virtually empty at this point, And we've talked about that on the show as well. And so because of that, we knew going into this thing that once we start opening it back up, those numbers were going to start skyrocketing. Now, we don't want to cause it to go up in a straight line and have that exponential spike beforehand, because if that was the case, then we didn't flatten the curve. We just delayed the curve. So it seems as though what's going on here is we are going to see an increase. We're going to see a bump, but that bump is not going to be something that our healthcare system cannot handle. That seems to be what is going to happen from now on. You may recall that when we were looking at, in fact, I'll just go ahead and pull this back up here real quickly when we were looking specifically at hospitalizations within the state of Alabama, one of the things that you are going to notice right there is that our hospitalizations, and remember, this isn't stagnant, so, you know, people cycle in and cycle out. People are hospitalized for a while, and then they either, unfortunately, pass away or they are released from the hospital because they've recovered. And so what you're going to notice is, if you're looking there, That our hospitalization rate which is on the decline that's going to be significantly lower than what our ultimate threshold is that we talked about very early when this thing was coming up that we needed to keep the hospitalizations roughly below 800 to ensure that we had or sorry 1600 to ensure that the 800 ventilators available to alabama were available Well, since then we've increased the number of ventilators and that means that that number has increased and we're nowhere near that hospitalizations, even in total, much less when looking at, um, much less when looking at how much we would have to have in there at one time. So we're not even, or I'm sorry, we barely passed the 1000 mark for the entire month. And when we started and had less equipment and were less ready, had to keep it under 1,600. Well, we've done that by great lengths. We've done excellent on that goal. And so this is where it comes into the second possible explanation for what all is going on here. The increase in cases, but the decrease in hospitalizations and the decrease in deaths may suggest that what is happening is now that some people are starting to get out more, they're starting to sort of slowly open up the economy, although in Alabama, not very much, but because people are starting to treat this as, you know, something that they don't have to stay at home all the time. They can go out, socialize a little more than they were. And also I think part of that is just because people are starting to get stir crazy and, and need to get out. You're going to see that increase in cases but not from people, at least as a general rule, that are high-risk, like I am, that have risk factors that would make them more susceptible to it. Which means that most of the susceptible people that were going to die if they got this thing, a lot of them have probably already died, which of course is horrible and tragic, but it also means that what was left of the people were probably people that were not susceptible to it, that are the ones that are going out and taking more risk and and trying to, uh, to do more, which means they were the ones that were getting it, which means they were the ones that didn't need hospitalizations and didn't die. And so that's a possible reading of it. Again, I think the first one is actually more likely. I think it's just because this is a lagging statistic and we're going to see an increase, especially now that we're starting to open things up, in deaths and in hospitalizations. But it is also possible and should not be discounted that what is happening is what we saw early on with the deaths are people that were susceptible to it, that had those risk factors that were elderly or had heart disease or lung disease or whatever else it was that wound up catching this thing. And unfortunately they needed to be hospitalized or passed away. Now what you're seeing is a lot of the people that are not in those risk categories going out and catching this thing. So the cases going up, the hospitalizations and deaths staying about where they were ahead of t- or before all of this happened. And that means that more or less, I mean, they've gone down a little. The death rate has gone down significantly. The hospitalization rate has gone down, although with the death rate, I still think that the weekend is at least playing a role in that. So I don't think it's quite as, we're not quite to the point yet that that the death toll is basically a a non-consideration at this point. But if that is all true, and it happens to be the young people getting out and, and they're just not susceptible to it, and they're the ones that are getting sick, that actually goes a very long way to increasing our herd immunity, and that's something that's very beneficial for us. So I really hope that is the real answer, but I think it's actually more likely that what you're seeing is the first answer, that these are lagging stats, and, and the truth is we won't be able to know whether or not that is true for at least another week, if not two. I, I hope that does prove to be true, because that would, that would be fantastic, but I don't know if that is going to bear out. So real quickly, before we go to a break here, what are the best possible outcomes of this thing and how likely are they? Because I, I know that we're doing a lot of speculation on this show, but we're getting to the point to where it seems like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And because of that, we need to think about the possible... Uh, what, what's the best way to say this? It? It's the possible effects or sorry, the the possible outcomes and what effects those are going to lead into. So right now, I think the best case scenario is that we get no resurgence. This was a one-time thing. The virus starts dying out within a month or so. And because we get into those warm summer months, that basically kills off the virus. We don't have to worry about it. And lo and behold, when fall comes, it doesn't show up. That would be fantastic. I don't know if that how likely that is to happen because as bad as things like avian flu and swine flu that didn't have resurgences were they didn't really pop back up a second time in part because they weren't nearly as widespread and not nearly as contagious as this thing is now the level of uh, contagion that that this thing had was somewhat exaggerated but the point is it's still a much more contagious virus than those two were, and that means that they didn't have a, re- a resurge. This one might. This one might continue to live on at some point, for example, in the Southern Hemisphere, where it's significantly colder, uh, or is going to be because, remember, they're in their winter right now. And so what we're having to deal with is that it is quite likely that we're going to have some kind of a resurgence the odds of having no resurgence is low, not impossible, but I would say that the likelihood for that one is low. Our second base case scenario, we get a vaccine. Now, I think that that's certainly possible. If we do have a resurgence in fall and this becomes a yearly thing like the flu, then what's probably going to happen is we are gonna develop a vaccine, but you have to keep in mind that developing a vaccine for something like this, that can take years it can take decades. I don't think it'll take decades, but it can take decades. I could see realistically a vaccine for this thing because so much money has been sunk into it. And especially if we get a resurgence for it, realistically, I do see a vaccine for this thing being developed within the next two, three years. Now, remember that we were on our way to a SARS vaccine which, by the way, this is a strain of SARS. The, the actual scientific name of the virus is SARS-CoV-2. But when it came to SARS, we actually were developing and working on a vaccine, but it didn't have a resurgence. And so the money dried up and, and the interest in working on that kind of went away. And so because of that, if this thing has no resurgence, we probably never get a vaccine. We, we probably just drop it as a project. I think that we probably should develop a vaccine just in case, but regardless, that is a, a possible outcome. Now, if we do get a vaccine, I think it's unlikely that we do before fall. So even in the scenario, which I think is the second best case scenario, even in the scenario where we do wind up getting this vaccine, I don't think it shows up for at least a couple of years. And I think that that that's working at like the flash levels of speed being able to get a vaccine like this out within just two years. So two, three-ish years, it could could be four or five. We just don't know yet. Now, the third best case scenario, this is an effective treatment. So if we just find a treatment that backs you off enough to where if you're a relatively healthy person, even if you do have maybe a, a risk factor or two that it's not going to kill you, that's going to go a very long way in reducing the lethality rate. I mean, if we can just, if it only works on half the people that have this virus, that cuts the lethality rate in half. And if this lethality rate is somewhere between 0.2 and 0.6, which the latest studies would indicate, being able to cut that in half would bring it down to roughly flu levels. It would be about the level of danger to us as the common flu. So you have to remember that the the death rate or the fatality rate for the flu is roughly 0.1. And, ours, and for, for uh, coronavirus, it's somewhere between 0.2 and 0.6. Well, if you can bring that to half, that brings it a lot closer to it being more like the flu than this earth-shattering pandemic where everybody has to hide in their houses for a month and a half. And then the, uh, the fourth best-case scenario is kind of the same. It's a somewhat effective treatment. So a treatment that just, you know, does all right maybe in 25% of the patients, it winds up helping. Well, that's still a, a pretty big improvement over what we have now, which is basically nothing, or at the very least, some promising trials. And we'll actually talk about one of those here in a second because it has a connection to UAB. But if we're looking at it right there, a somewhat effective treatment, I think that's likely, likely within a few months. I, I don't think we go much longer without having some kind of decent treatment that works to counteract this virus in an effective way, at least for some people, doesn't pop up here pretty soon. We've already seen some pretty promising numbers on that. I just don't see a scenario where we don't have that in, I would say, fairly short order. If we have a second resurgence of this thing, I gotta believe the medical community is going to have some kind of idea as to how to how to work this thing. The fifth best case scenario, herd immunity. And herd immunity would, in my opinion, not be quite as good as these in the sense that it's it's not as quick a fix. But in the long term, I think it's better. Because it would be far better to develop some sort of herd immunity, some kind of resistance to this thing, than it would be to have people vaccinated, which, you know, a lot of people won't get vaccinated even if it winds up being really important. Than to have to have people in hospitals, but, you know, still experience symptoms. And, and even if we have an effective treatment, it's still not as good as people just having herd immunity, developing an immunity to this thing, and the vast majority of people not having to worry about it. I think that that would be our fifth best case scenario, but still something that is achievable. And I think that not only is this one likely, we're probably already well on our way. Because if the experiments in, for example, New York and LA, and I get that those are population dense areas, which means that it's not going to be as widespread in rural areas like Alabama and, and other states. But if that is the case and we're, up to 50% of the population has the antibodies for this thing and, and it turns out that a lot more people had this thing than we thought, not only is that going to decrease the rate of fatality, but what it is also going to do is it's going to mean that we're a lot closer to herd immunity than we thought that we were. And if that is the case, then that means that we are far better prepared for the second round of this thing than we would have been otherwise. Worst case scenario, nothing. And I say that's virtually impossible with everybody working on this towards treatments, towards vaccines. And then also the fact that we already have pretty good indications that we're well on our way to herd immunity. Nothing seems like an an impossibility. There's just no way that it's this bad, uh, continuing on. Now that doesn't mean that the second wave can't be worse I'm just saying from a medical perspective, because I mean, you know, this thing could sneak up on us and catch us with our pants down and and go through the population very quickly and still overwhelm our healthcare system. That is still a possibility in the second round of this thing. However, when I say nothing, I mean the, the idea that we won't be able to treat it in some way or have some kind of vaccine or build up some level of resistance to it as a species. I find that basically impossible to believe. I'm not saying that it's completely impossible, but it's just, it's so unlikely. I don't think it's even really worth consideration. I think the truth though, and what is going to happen is that you're going to see some level of combination of these things. So we're going to be working on a vaccine and we may have one that's partially effective, at least in some people. And then we're going to have a somewhat effective treatment. And there's going to be people that, that, don't have to worry about it at all because they're already part of herd immunity. And so you're probably going to get a combination of basically all of these things. The only exception, of course, being is if we don't have a resurgence in the fall, then probably all of it goes away (laughs) because that's such a good, a best case scenario that you probably don't worry about developing treatments or developing vaccines. And then, of course, if there's no resurgence, then there's going to be no herd immunity. So the best case scenario would pretty much negate all the others, but all the others, I think that you're going to get a combination of those things, which is the most realistic outcome of this whole thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and take a break, and we're going to come back with a couple of stories, both of which deal with Alabama. So we're, we're doing basically exclusively local news today. There is a situation going on in one of our northern counties with the sheriff, and also, and this is important as well, there are some really big developments on those treatments that we were just talking about with coronavirus that are being developed at Alabama's own UAB. So we will get to that in just a second. We'll be right back. Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here. Now, a couple of stories, and, and these were all over social media, especially for my Alabama buddies this past couple days. An Alabama sheriff has actually defied Governor Ivey's order. This came from a report from the Coleman Daily News earlier, I believe, that this broke on Sunday. So it's it's actually pretty recent. You know how weekend news cycles go. This is a quote from that article. Blount County Sheriff Mark Moon says that he's told his deputies not to stop businesses or churches that violate the governor's safer-at-home order. Moon noted that he cannot force himself to go after the hardworking people and churches for doing what they feel is the best thing for them, their families, or their congregations. And it is interesting to note that, according to this same article, Sheriff Moon is also the pastor at County Line Baptist Church, up in that area. Now, I think that really digging into this and what he's saying is, I sympathize for the guy. I really do, because it is part of his job to enforce the law. And unfortunately, the way the laws of Alabama are written, it seems as though the governor does have authority to sort of broadly do this. The way it's being implemented, I think, is wildly wrong. And as I've said from the beginning, just from surely a liberty perspective, I cannot get on board with Governor Ivey enacting these things because I don't think that she has the right to. You're actually violating an inborn human right by ordering people to not leave their homes. I, that That's just insane to me. Now, I, I still think that people should stay home and should self-quarantine, but it should be voluntary and these should be guidelines, not laws. However, the way that the law is structured, and I believe it's structured stupidly, the way that the law is structured... The governor does have the authority to do this under Alabama's law. She shouldn't, but she does. And the sheriff did take an oath to uphold the laws of the state of Alabama. And a sheriff, at least in the state of Alabama, can't speak to other states, don't know how that works there. In the state of Alabama, the sheriff is also a constitutional officer. But at the same time, if I were in this guy's shoes, I couldn't do it either. Because now... As a, and this is the reason that he should never be put in this position. As an officer of the law, I am caught between a rock and a hard place. I have to look at myself and say, all right, well, I've got a choice to make. I can either enforce the laws of Alabama by the duly elected governor of the state, who won overwhelmingly, by the way, not that that matters, she'd be duly elected even if she won by one vote, but you know what I'm saying. The duly elected governor of the state of Alabama has issued this order, and I have a duty and swore an oath to comply with those laws. That doesn't mean that Governor Ivy, you know, is a dictator and can tell sheriffs to do whatever she wants, but this does technically fall within her purview to be able to do, even though it shouldn't. So now I've got to choose between doing that and violating a person's God-given human right. And I would have made the same decision that he did. As much as I would feel that, that tear inside of me between, you know, what to do and, and I'd have to think, think about it and pray about it quite a bit. But ultimately I know how I think, and I know that I and a lot of other Alabamians around the state, if they were in this guy's position, would do exactly the same thing and, and look and say, look, I'm not going to treat a person like a criminal for going to worship God. I'm just not going to do it. And even though I got to believe that this guy did not reach this lightly, and by the way, there's evidence of that later on, and I'll share that in a second, but the guy's a law enforcement officer. I got to believe that most law enforcement officers, and I would assume just, you know, by giving benefit of the doubt, that this guy is a person like this, that he's not an anarchist, he's not somebody that, you know, believes in lawlessness or chaos and, I mean, if you're law enforcement, you get into that job because you want to protect people most of the time. So I've got to also believe that this guy does genuinely want what is best for his state and best for the people of his community. And he's got to look at those people. And and I don't think that law enforcement officers should be able to just willy-nilly say, no, I'm not going to enforce X law that I don't like, because then you do really do wind up with chaos and anarchy. Then you have all kinds of problems. But I'm just saying, if I'm in this guy's shoes, I I think I'd probably wind up doing the same thing. I don't think I could have done that. And I would, as somebody that that has a job, and part of the reason that my show started a little late is because I was doing stuff with my other job. uh, Being a disciplinarian and somebody that, that does have to deal with policy violations and that kind of thing, there are rules here on Faulkner's campus that I am in charge of enforcing that I don't like. Multiple of them. But I took the job. It's my job to enforce those rules. And I knew when I signed up for this job, there were going to be rules that I didn't like, but I already said to the the staff and my boss and, and the university as a whole, I'm going to be the guy that enforces them. I am okay with taking on that job. I agree with, you know, 98% of the rules probably here at Faulkner. It's the 2% I don't, but I'm still in charge of enforcing them, so i got to do it regardless. That came with the territory. That's not the case with this guy. Because I've got to believe, as a duly elected sheriff of the state of Alabama who is a constitutional officer under our, our constitutional structure, the way that Alabama's constitution works... That he's looking at these orders saying, if you see a person, if you see more than 10 people gathering in a church together, you've got to pull them out of that church and arrest them or find them. He's got to be looking at that and like, hey, I didn't sign up for this. When I became a sheriff, this was not what I had on my agenda. And I get that, that he did know going into it that laws could change and there might be some things that he'd have to enforce that he didn't want to. But when it comes to that, I mean, that's a deal breaker, man. That's the thing where you got to sit back and and look long and hard and go, "Mm, finding people for worshiping. Yeah, can't do that. That's a violation of human rights. I didn't know that I was going to do that. It's the same thing that we had a couple years ago with the whole gay marriage thing with the county clerk in Kentucky. Basically her stance was, I didn't sign up for this when I was elected and took the job. This was not part of it. And so this is a guy that is really caught in an impossible position. And he has to either violate his conscience and God or the executive order that K. I. V. passed down the safer at home orders. And basically the way that he handles it is he just instructs his deputies. He's like, don't, don't do it. And, and I feel for the guy. But as further clarification for his thought process to help us understand how he arrived at this conclusion. He does speak up earlier today in an interview done by ABC 3340, where he said, and this is a quote directly from Sheriff Moon, Here's what the order is. Here's what the order says you can do. But we are not coming to your churches and pulling you out of your places of worship and putting you in jail and writing a citation for being in your place of worship. That seems like mincing words. That seems like the guy is trying to say, I'm not defying it, but I'm also not going to enforce it. Well, by not enforcing it as a law enforcement officer, you are kind of in a roundabout way. You are defying it to a degree. I think that that's, uh, he's trying to dance around the fact that he is in defiance of it. But I do also think, that that is a pretty strong indication that this is not a guy that arrived at this lightly. This is not somebody that's just a rabble rouser or tried to, to make a, a big deal about it. This is not somebody that's doing it for his own political gain or somebody that's just, yeah, I'm going to stick it to Governor Ivy and and we're going to, you know, basically... That, that's not what's going on here. And by the way, he also says as much directly afterward Talking about the governor herself, where he says, I'm not opposing the governor. I'm not defiant of her order. It's just we have people in our country that are hurting that need to get back to work and support their families. I can't, in my heart of hearts, punish somebody for trying to do what's best for themselves, their families, and their congregations. That's soft opposition, but it's still opposition. Like I said, it's not that this guy is getting together a militia and going to storm the state house demanding that Governor Ivy rescind the safer-at-home orders. That's not what's happening here. And I don't think that this guy is trying to grandstand or anything like that because politicians kind of do that stuff all the time. This guy, from a, a place of meekness, is just coming forward and saying, I am not going to arrest people for going back to work so that they can provide for their families, and going to church so that they can worship God together. I'm just not going to do it. And I feel for the guy. I do. But i probably wind up doing the same thing. So is he doing the right thing by doing so? I would have to argue yes. From a legal perspective, I'd, I I would probably say no. Like, if you're asking me, surely as an exercise in legality, I would have to say no. Because first and foremost, he is an officer, not even of the United States, but specifically of the state of Alabama. And he has sworn a oath to uphold those laws. And this is something that Governor Ivey, according to Alabama's laws, she is able to do, shouldn't have that power, but does. And so from a strictly legal perspective, I'd have to say he's probably in the wrong. But if you're asking me overall as a moral perspective, which is the more important part of this equation, I'd have to say that he's right. As an, as an enforcer of the law, violating a person's God-given inborn human rights would be a bigger issue to me than disobeying a state law. And I don't take either one likely, but I'm saying if I've got to choose between those two things, If it's just a personal preference and I just happen to not like the law, it doesn't matter. I'm a law enforcement officer. I've got to follow the law. But if it's not a personal preference, if this is a right that has been given to somebody by God, and it's literally the first right that our founders decided to include in the Bill of Rights as a listing of things that were given to people by God that the government shall not violate, I've got to draw the line there. And so I think that he did do the right thing. But one thing that I do think is important for us to note here is that this is a fascinating delve into federalism. Because federalism has always understood that the people that are closest to the people that they are governing are the ones that are most accountable and will be most reflective of that population. And it seems to me that what's going on here... And I think that this is correct, based on what I've seen and my my personal experience, that the people of Alabama are tired of it. They don't like being told that they can't gather in churches. They don't like being told that they're not allowed to open their business. Again, it would be one thing if it was just we suggest it, but no, they're actually saying it's illegal for you to do this, and we'll fine you or we'll jail you for doing so. And because of that, this local sheriff who has to he has to answer to the people of his county and knows that, is saying, I'm just not going to be, essentially, Governor Ivey's enforcement arm in this county for enforcing this specific thing. I'm not going to do it. In the same way, any edict that is passed down from the federal government to the states is the same way. Whether it's a state law or a federal law, they all rely upon a person at the local level having to enforce it, which is one of the primary reasons that as a federalist myself, I've always said that the vast majority of laws, especially the ones that deal with a citizen's day-to-day life, should be made as close to the person as humanly possible. Most of the laws you have to adhere to should be made by your cities, towns, municipalities, and counties. And then, and only when those laws are insufficient or only with laws that could not be done within those confines should a law be made at the state or the federal level, as the case may be. For example, if we're talking about laws that deal specifically with interstate commerce, yeah, the federal government has to do that. States could not regulate that on their own because they would always favor their own states. They would favor themselves. And so to act as a mediator between those things, the Fed has to get involved in a matter like that. Same thing with the state on things that affect other counties or other municipalities, then yes, the state does have to get involved in issues. But that, but what we've done is we've completely flipped that on, there, on its head to where we have tons of federal laws, some state laws, and then at the very bottom, we have some local laws that, that deal only with local matters and, and don't deal with, and, and at the federal level, we have things that deal and interfere with those local towns and municipalities. Frankly, I would find it far more tolerable if Governor Ivy had just said, these are our guidelines for the state, we're going to leave it up to the individual mayors and county commissioners and that kind of thing to enforce whatever they feel is necessary and do so. Uh, as much as I may dislike Mayor Reed, and even though I like Governor Ivy more than I like Mayor Reed, I think that would be a better solution to this. Because then you would have more people making decisions that make sense for their own community. A great example in this. Take the coronavirus out of it for a second. The fact that abortion is still legal in Alabama, even though we passed a law that said it isn't, is contingent upon people, and I'm not... I don't know how to word this delicately. I understand why they have not done this yet, but I would be willing to call their bluff on it if I were in their position. When it comes to things like abortion, and since Alabama passed a law stating abortion is, legal, is illegal, I would shut down those offices and basically dare anybody at the federal level to come enforce their own law. Now, they might enforce it, and they might come down with the army or whatever and make it to where people can get an abortion in the state of Alabama, but you better believe that if I was in charge of enforcing that law... Buddy, they would have to come and do it themselves and keep people, keep members of the military stationed in Alabama to make that happen. Unfortunately, people in Alabama are not willing to do that, but that is, that's, again, one of those issues where it's a God-given right and I have to draw the line. But the same thing is going on here. Because barring Governor Ivey sending state troopers specifically to Blunt County, to enforce these laws, there's not a whole lot she can do if the local sheriff doesn't enforce them. I mean, that's just the way that it is. And so the interesting thing about this, and one thing that it does teach us about federalism, is that every law passed at a higher level of government, every single one is incumbent upon a local law enforcement official complying with that. You can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's really beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today. But ultimately, that is a rule of federalism that we should keep in mind. So, the only question that I have left in this is, how long do we have to wait until this becomes common? Do you think, especially based on the rousing support that the sheriff received from a lot of his own constituents and people outside of Blount County from around the state of Alabama, Do you think that if the safer at home orders continue to stay in effect that you start seeing other county sheriffs do this? It's hard to say. I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't know. I I could maybe see some of the sheriffs in in Elmore or Ataga or some of the other surrounding areas just say we're not going to enforce it. Maybe. I don't know the sheriffs well enough to be able to make the call on whether or not they would do that or not. But ultimately, I think if this thing goes much longer, Sheriff Moon's not going to be the only one that's doing this. Another story out of the great state of Alabama, UAB has had a, played a role. They're not exclusively the ones that have done this, but they've played a significant role in a new virus treatment for the coronavirus. So there is an antiviral drug that is being used now called uh, remdesivir, which, by the way, was hilarious. I was actually watching President Trump several weeks ago. You remember when all this stuff came out about him being uh, promoting hydrochloroquine? Well, weeks ago, he was also promoting this drug. And I'm uh, it, the only reason that they seemed to latch on to, even though there was as much evidence for one as the other, that, no, Trump was wrong about hydrochloroquine is because they saw the opportunity with somebody drinking fish tank cleaner as a, a way to blame him for that, which is the reason that one got all the attention and this one didn't, despite the fact that he actually started talking about them at about the same time. And in that same press conference, right after he talks about hydrochloroquine, he starts talking about this one, Remdemosphere, even though he pronounced it uh, Remdwesevoir, like it it was French or something, I don't know. But anyway, that's, uh, (laughs) President Trump was doing that Uh, even back when he started promoting hydrochloroquine. But this is really important because 68% of the patients in the study that were done on this drug actually improved with the symptoms of COVID-19 over the ones who did not, which is really significant. And if this thing winds up being a treatment that, you know, it doesn't have to be a cure, but as long as this thing is going to significantly reduce the chances of dying from this thing, then this becomes a whole new conversation when it comes to when the country is going to open up, that sort of thing. So the drug was developed at UAB through a public-private partnership with Gilead Science. Uh, So, I mean, props to UAB. They were one of the ones that did, they, they were involved in this project where they were doing a test on new drug discovery, and they were actually the facility that led to the testing on this particular drug. And Dr. Fauci spoke the other day, very optimistically about it at a press conference. He said that this may be not necessarily the silver bullet, but the thing that we've been waiting for to significantly reduce the chances of dying from this virus. And Dr. Paul, and I have no idea how to pronounce his last name, uh, Dr. Paul Go- I it's, it's G-O-E-P-F-E-R-T. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Uh, but anyway, he's a professor and a doctor at UAB. He said that it is highly, su- or sorry, he's a doctor at UAB, not a professor. I want to make sure I got that right. Anyway, he said that it is highly suggestive that this will lower the fatality rate But he did caution, look, this is not a home run yet. In other words, this ain't the silver bullet that everybody's been praying for, but it's certainly something that helps us in the fight. So, I guess to put it in comic book movie terms, I tell you what, since it's Star Wars, we'll put it in Star Wars terms. Uh, To put this in Star Wars terms, it's not quite the uh, nailing the torpedo in the exhaust port to destroy the entire Death Star, but it's... It's putting some pretty significant damage. It's it's knocking a big dent in the, the Death Star, maybe not making it or making it not nearly as operational as it used to be, not fully operational. So that's probably a better analogy to help you understand what's going on. But one thing that is great about this and one thing that this really puts on display, I imagine there are stories like this all over America. I do. I think that there are probably stories about this in different universities, different hospitals all over the country. And it's, it's really cool that one that just happened to be in Alabama was able to do this and and help lead to this discovery. But I think that it is a testament to American ingenuity and there are probably similar hospitals with similar stories in Kansas and Oklahoma and Wyoming and Maine and Alaska for all we know that probably have very similar research going on. And it really does go to show that even in places that people might consider flyover country or places that are not in the centers of power along the East and West Coast, there are Americans working very hard in unity with each other, trying to help out their friends and neighbors. I just think that that's really a testament to how Americans can come together in a time of crisis like this. All right, let's go ahead and go to our chaplain's report. Today's Chaplain's Report, we are continuing our series in the book of Samuel. You may remember if you were watching the Chaplain's Report from Thursday that Saul, not yet King Saul, he has not been anointed. Samuel is out looking for who shall be the king of Israel. And then there's King Saul, who is just a boy, helping out his dad and looking for their donkeys, which have gone missing. That he is going to go and seek out God's counsel by meeting Samuel. And that's really where our story picks up here is that God has now told Samuel I'm going to bring the new king to you. He is going to show up about this time of day. He says he's going to be of the tribe of Benjamin, which of course Saul is. And so the Lord gets Samuel ready to receive the new king of Israel and this is where we start our reading today in Samuel or sorry 1 Samuel 9 uh, 19 through 21 and it states Samuel answered Saul and said I am the seer go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today and in the morning I will go and will tell you all that is on your mind as for your donkeys which were lost 3 days ago do not set your mind on them for these have been found and for whom all is uh, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel is it not for, is it not for you and for all your father's household? Saul replied, "Am I not a Benjamite, of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my father's, or sorry. And my family, the least of the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak with me this way?" This little episode in Saul's life. Is really fascinating for a couple of reasons. But as we've already said, he at a very young age, because he's probably a man, but a pretty young man at this point, he already sees the value in God's advice. He already has a desire to seek out God's help. And he has a certain level of humility and wanting to not just be somebody that takes God's advice but also gives back and contributes, that kind of thing. So we see a lot of Saul's character in his early life that is admirable. And, of course, with the hindsight, we know eventually that that doesn't turn out to be uh, that his character winds up being destroyed later on by himself. But in this particular episode we see that Saul defines himself by a worldly standard. He seems to not have the confidence that he'll later display, and that confidence gives way to hubris and pride later on. But at this point, he does not see himself as a king. He sees himself as a a lowly farmhand, and not just a farmhand, but a farmhand to a family that's, let's be honest, not all that prestigious. The tribe of Benjamin is the smallest tribe out of all of the tribes of Israel. If you count the other 12, because you have the uh, 11 tribes, and then one of the tribes is split up into two, Benjamin's still the smallest of all the tribes of Israel. And of that small tribe, he's a member of one of the families that is the least prominent in that tribe. So to say that he is from humble roots would be a gross understatement. Remember, he only runs into the prophet because he's looking for his donkeys. I mean, it's not exactly the most uh, fancy or prestigious job that you can have. And yet we see this very humble Saul come forward, and he's actually pretty baffled by the fact that Samuel wants anything to do with him. Like, not necessarily that he's just being polite to him, But the way that he words it and the the way that he's talking to Saul here is, oh, you're you're going to be my guest. You're going to come up with me. You're going to be a person that is, is put in a place of prominence. We're going to dine together. And this is because Samuel, he hasn't told Saul this yet, but he's going to anoint him king over all of Israel. And Saul's just very confused by all this. He's not used to people treating him as though he is a person of importance. That's not something that he is accustomed to. And because of it, he's just kind of sitting there like, Really, Samuel? It it seems odd that you're wanting me to stay overnight and be your guest and and dine with you and and all these big fancy things when I'm I'm just a guy looking for lost donkeys. That's literally the extent of, of the reason that I came here. And it's understandable that Saul sees himself this way. Remember that he's not the only person chosen of God that did this. In fact, a lot of them did. Remember Moses' reaction at the burning bush? Moses is just there like, um, God, are, are you sure? I'm really not the, the guy that you should be getting to do this. I mean, I, I can't handle this. I'm not a great talker. People in Egypt don't exactly like me. The only thing they know me for is that I'm a rogue prince that killed somebody. And so I really think you, you need to start looking in other places for your guy on this matter. And Saul kind of has a similar attitude, not quite as dismissive as Moses, but he's just kind of like, um, no, I, I'm not really the person that you think I am. And he tries to even explain away, as like, look, I, I'm just a, a kid in a, a normal family that's, that's not even all that prestigious. All of these things. And remember, especially at this time in Israel, pedigree was everything. And so if you, if you weren't in with one of the bigger tribes or one of the larger families, one of the more wealthy families, one of the more prevalent families in Hebrew culture, like that was basically how they defined everything. And Saul didn't really have any of that, which I think was part of the reason that God chose him in the first place is to show him that, well, you're important to God no matter what. You're important to God. That background stuff doesn't matter to God. And by the way, since we brought up Moses, Moses is in a similar situation. Like, all that stuff, all that baggage that Moses was carrying with him, that thought made him unfit to be God's chosen prophet, God's like, Yeah, I, I, it'll be fine. Go. I promise you, I'll, I'll take care of it. All the things that you're worried about, I'll fix it. Just go. And so... I think that that's something that that we run into quite a bit as well. When we look at ourselves, and we tend to be our own harshest critic. Now, some people have the opposite problem, and Saul, even later in life, has the opposite problem as well, that he can't see his own flaws. But a lot of us tend to be our own harshest critic. And part of the reason is because we know ourselves better than anybody else, except for God. And that's also because we're looking at ourselves right now as though we should be a finished product and aren't. That's not how God sees us. See, God looked at Saul and saw the best version of what Saul could be. And in a lot of ways, Saul was a great king. He wound up being a terrible king before it was all said and done. But there were a lot of things that Saul did along the way that made him a really good king, made him somebody that God would want to have as his anointed king to lead his people. Saul didn't see it at this point yet, but God did. When he spoke to Moses at the burning bush, Moses didn't get it, but God did. He understood all of this stuff ahead of time. When we see God calling other prophets, like Isaiah... Isaiah's like, I'm a little young. God doesn't look at those things. Anything that we're carrying around, any baggage that we have, anything that we think makes us unfit for God's service, God looks at it and says, no, I can use you. Now, he calls us for different things. He calls us for different things at different times. But ultimately, that remains constant, that whatever it is that we think holds us back or makes it to where we can't do what God asks us to do, God will take care of it. He never leaves any of his workmen ill-equipped. Now, he may equip them with different things, with different talents, with different abilities, and he may do it for different purposes at different times, but ultimately, he never asks anything of us that he knows we would be incapable of doing. That's not who God is. And the same thing is true right here with Saul. Saul, who looked at himself and didn't see anything worth Samuel treating like somebody of importance, God looked at him and saw potentially a really great king. And the important thing about all that is not only did God see that, but he acted upon it. And even though God, because he knows all things, knew that Saul eventually was going to turn out to be a terrible king, ultimately he still gave Saul the opportunity to do what was right. He ultimately gave Saul the opportunity to serve him in a way that would be productive for both of them. And he does the same thing with us today. Yeah, we fail. Sometimes we fall short of what God wants us to do. We don't always accomplish the things that he sets out for us. But ultimately, there's always time to come back to him and to be the person that God envisioned us to be when he called us. The person that God knows we can be, not just the person we've allowed ourselves to become. If God made all of us and created all of us, don't you think that he made us adequately equipped For all of the things that he would ask us to do, of course he would. He would be cruel and evil if he didn't. It would be sadistic even for him to require of us something that we are incapable of doing. That's why he sent Jesus in the first place. Because the thing that he wanted us to be, sinless, could only be accomplished through Christ. And so he gave us the only thing that we needed, the only thing that we lacked, to be in a right relationship with Him. You see, God calls everybody for something, and He never dials the wrong number. He never gets the messages mixed up. He never gives us a task that was really meant for somebody else, or somebody that's better than us, or better suited for us. If God asks us to do it, it's because He wants us to do it, not somebody else. And He doesn't ask us things that He knows are beyond our own abilities. You see, ultimately, our excuses and limitations don't matter if we have God, because if we have God, we can overcome those things. Saul, unfortunately, did for to, for a while and to a degree, and then fell back into other problems. But think about all the people in the Bible that didn't. Think about how he calls Moses and, and Saul's successor, David, at times where they didn't have a lot to brag about from worldly standards, where the world would look at them and see nothing, God saw who they could be. And His divine intervention and providence worked to make them, or at least give them the opportunity to be that person. That's the same God that does the same thing for us today. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.